you talented tortoises out there. Welcome back for another week of A Little Greener, your podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. We just love the natural world here at ALG and come together every week to, to talk about it. Everything from backyard wildlife to global conservation projects. So I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am here yet again with the best co-host ever, Casey. How are, how are things, Casey? How are you doing? Hey, right back at you, Sarah. I am tired. That's where I'm at right now. I worked 10 days in a row and um, not Ooh. that it was like a full like eight hour days, but but it was a mix between like a couple hours and like 12 hour days. And I'm tired. Yeah. If you don't like, you just need to get a full day of rest in there somewhere. If you don't. Yeah. That's exhausting. You do. And let me tell you, it cuts into your podcast research time. (laughs) People hear like the hour and a half that you and I are together here, but this really does take a a lot lot more effort than that. Um, So luckily this week, we're going to be talking about a subject that I am pretty familiar with, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but let's uh, refer back to last episode. Every week we uh, assign our listeners a challenge related to the topic of the episode. Last week, Sarah talked about innovation and conservation and assigned us a challenge of checking out some cool projects on Zooniverse which is a website where you can participate in kind of community citizen science projects in conjunction with some conservation projects. Sarah, did you do your homework? I sort of cheated a little bit on this one in that I didn't in the past week since the episode came out, but I did do, I participated as I was preparing for that episode. Yeah. I sort of got hooked. And I think I I said in the episode that it can get a little bit addicting. So I had just gotten on to see what projects were currently available and look at some different things. And I had found the Indie Wildlife Watch project, which is in my home state. And so I was like, Ooh, let me do that. So I had done some, some of that. So just a fun way to participate in concert, like real live conservation projects through the use of technology. So I did that. I didn't do it this week, but I'm sure I'll be back on. I hop on Zooniverse every once in a while just to see what's out there. So I'll definitely check some other things out too. Oh, I also looked at one of the sound ones. Like I think I was looking at a dolphin sound ID one. That was a little harder actually. It it took a little more like, okay, what is it that I'm listening for? What do I have to do? So I didn't do that one for super long, but I tried it. When I uh, interned at the Philadelphia Zoo, we had a project um, where they were working in conjunction with scientists who were in Puerto Rico trying to identify different frog species in different habitats. And yeah, you would listen to like a 30 second recording and you'd hear like five different frogs and then have to scroll through and Mm -hmm. like compare it to existing frog calls. And I was like, okay, I am definitely not cut out to be a frog scientist. (laughs) This is not my forte. But uh, with Indie Wildlife Watch, we've actually worked with people who help collect data. I've definitely set up camera traps actually for that project. I don't know if you've been involved in that, but it it's really cool to have other people involved in going through all of those photos there. And you will be surprised. So if you live in the Indy area, you might be surprised by some of the animals that are living like literally right in your city. So check that out or see if your city's represented in there. Yeah. And, or your favorite animal, you know, maybe yeah. has a conservation project. Just one thing to say, if we've made you nervous with that though, if you're not an expert or you feel like I won't be able to do this, don't worry about it. They do have little tutorials. Also the benefit of this is it's not just you 
looking at these photos or listening to these sounds, they can give it to a lot of different people. And that way they can kind of make sure the data is lining up. Uh, So if you were to miss something in a photo or a sound, it's not like you've ruined the project or anything like that. Uh, They have some safety nets built in there, but it is a fun way to learn and get involved and, and really help them out with something that's very time consuming. Yeah. Yeah. Generally they try and get at least like 10 eyes, I think 10 sets of eyes on each photo. And so if like, you know, half of them say there's something in it, then it's worth the scientists looking at versus the ones that everybody says there's nothing in it. So we're going to skip by it. So yeah, super cool projects. I failed at my homework when you work like I didn't even do laundry this week. So, so Zooniverse did not come in, but honestly, that would have been a more productive use of my time than scrolling through social media and probably just as fun and less, uh, bad for my brain. So that might be an option if you're looking for something to do a little bit more, uh, scrolling on your phone is to check out Zooniverse instead of Facebook. There you go. Yeah. It takes a little more effort to, to get yourself logged in, but then yeah, once you're going, yeah, yeah. it's, it's almost the same as, as scrolling and yeah. <laughs> going through the photos. Yeah. So it can be kind of soothing that way. Yeah. So, um, Sarah this week, we're going to be talking about a project that is near and dear to my heart and a species that's pretty near and dear to my heart. Do you want to introduce what species we're going to be talking about this week? Sure. We're going to be talking about radiated tortoises and I'm super excited about this because yeah, Casey is very knowledgeable about these animals. And can I, can I introduce who we're going to be talking to, or do you want to save that for a surprise? No, we can talk about it. It's who are we talking to this week, Sarah? So we're going to be talking to Andrew, who just happens to be Casey's fiance, uh, but also has done hands-on work with radiated tortoises in Madagascar. And I've obviously gotten a chance to talk to him about this personally myself before, but I love talking to both of you about all things, but about the radiated tortoises in particular, because you do have such passion and knowledge and experience around them. So I'm really excited to hear your own stories and learn a little bit more from you tonight. Yeah. We, big get, you know, getting my fiance to be on the <laughs> podcast. But the thing is, is that working in the conservation world, you make a lot of connections with people who have such unique experiences. So we're hoping that this is just the first of many episodes that we do with interviews with people who've done really, really cool things. For me personally, I do have actually a little bit of credentials when it comes to this species. I worked as the education advisor for the radiated tortoise species survival plan and safe programs. And both of those programs are run through association of zoos and aquariums, accredited institutions. And so basically like when you go to a zoo and you see a bunch of endangered species, a lot of times they are part of a program called the species survival plan that helps coordinate Like basically we like to say match.com for animals Mm -hmm. where it's not so much about personality, but genetics to make sure that the uh, population in human care is healthy and genetically diverse and can be kept in existence without needing to take animals out of the wild. And in addition to doing those things, something that's less talked about is those programs also try and organize education efforts, both in the U.S. where those zoos typically are or whatever country they're in, and in the home range of those species, and to try and uh, do some conservation efforts as well. So I've been part of those programs with some really amazing people who have dedicated a lot of time, and it's a volunteer position, didn't get paid extra for this. Uh, My term comes up at the end of the year, so I still have a little bit of time 
I'm working with some of the organizations we're going to talk about in this uh, episode. But the cool thing about tortoises is that zoos and other organizations that breed these animals actually have a really big role to play in the conservation of the species. But at the end of the day, it's all about making sure that those animals have continued existence out in the wild. So we're going to have Andrew on today to talk about the story of 10,000 tortoises in Madagascar. So if you guys stick around, we'll be back in just a couple moments with that story. All right. And we're back to the main body of our episode. And like I said, today, we're going to be talking about a tale of 10,000 tortoises. So (laughs) our story opens in April of 2018. Authorities in Southwestern Madagascar responded to a call about an overwhelming stench coming from a house there in the city of Tuliar. And when they get to the house, they have members of law enforcement, as well as the environmental agency there, instead of finding furniture, or maybe if you're listening and listening to true crime, a dead body, you know, they actually find on the floor, wall to wall tortoises. So you can look up pictures of this. They are tortoises of varying sizes. They're almost all radiated tortoises. And really there are maybe an inch between each of these tortoises. And when they do their count, they find 9,888 live tortoises. And I think it was 180 that had already passed away. And these tortoises were all collected from the wild. And what followed was an extraordinary rescue effort that is really going to highlight the courageous efforts of conservationists in Madagascar, the importance of international support for conservation efforts and the plight of turtles and tortoises all around the world. So we're going to welcome Andrew here who participated in this rescue effort. Hello. Hey, welcome Andrew. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, be on the podcast. It's good to have you. It's good to see you again. (laughs) (laughs) This is an audio medium, so you can't see that Andrew is wearing his Turtle Survival Alliance shirt right now. He changed just for this episode. I did. We were talking about the TSA and everything going on. So I changed pretty much not too I, long ago. Actually. I love it. I love the dedication, even knowing that our listeners wouldn't be able to see you. You're just putting, nope. putting us all in the mindset. I love it. And yeah, do head you, frame. Do you, yeah, right, exactly. Do you want to share a little bit about what you do too? Yeah, just a little background yeah. about me. Yeah, I can do that. So I went to school and got a four-year degree in biology with emphasis on zoology. I have been working with uh, reptiles and amphibians for professionally for about 10 years now. And I've also bred and taken care of animals at home as well. And I've worked with, give or take at this point, 400 different species about. Um, So I worked at a private zoo and I've uh, now worked at professional Asia institutions and I uh, vary into turtles and tortoises, and that's why I'm coming on to this episode. And, you know, I, I have some cool, cool things to talk about yeah. with you with the Madagascar trip. Yeah, I will just say to for folks listening, I feel like the reptile and amphibian world is like its whole 
thing and folks that work with them are typically just very very into them and very knowledgeable like I am not a reptile person like I don't have that background and I will go to Andrew with just the most random questions about (laughs) things that I just come up come across or think about or get asked by other people and it's it's always incredible to me the answers that he's able to give me and just the wealth of knowledge so excited to to hear from you tonight about especially about you know this specific event and your involvement in it so thanks again for being here yeah I'm happy to do it and in in your jobs, you have not just, we're going to talk about the experience you had with radiated tortoises in Madagascar, but you have also helped successfully breed radiated tortoises in human care as well, right? I have, yes, I have. <laughs> They're so I cute, have. guys. They're yeah. the cutest <laughs> babies in the whole world. Yes, I, I have luckily been able to participate in breeding efforts for radiateds, um, critically endangered species that we're going to talk about, as well as uh, spider tortoises that are also critically endangered and also from Madagascar professionally. And I have also been able to breed pancake tortoises. Pancake tortoises have recently, I believe, been considered uh, critically Critically endangered endangered now. And I was successfully able to breed them um, this last year and hatch them too. That's another part. You have to get them to actually hatch out of their eggs. (laughs) So um, So hopefully that continues. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about radiated tortoises and to kind of frame the story, let's talk about this species. Cause I'm sure a lot of our guests are not familiar with radiated tortoises. Um, radiated tortoises are one of many really amazing and unique species native to Madagascar, which is an Island just off the coast of Africa, which has amazing biological diversity and a lot of unique animals only found there and radiated tortoises at one time may have been the most common species of tortoises in the entire world, which is pretty incredible when you think about like their range is only the Southern part of Madagascar. And they were an estimated 12 million of these tortoises just walking around down there, just doing their thing, being tortoises. (laughs) Um, I think we talked to some conservationists who said like you would basically just drive your car and just like constantly just find lots of tortoises just crossing the road. 12 million is not where the number is right now, but that's historically where it was. And they are a symbol of the Southern part of Madagascar. So you can think about here in the US, we've got our bald eagle. It is a symbol. It is a an object of pride in the, in Southern Madagascar, that is kind of, I I can't say it's exactly their bald eagle, but it is a symbol of the South in a lot of ways, because it just is so emblematic of that region. Sarah, you have worked alongside radiated tortoises. Can you describe physically what people should be envisioning in their head. Yes. So we're not talking about like the giant Galapagos or Aldabra tortoises. So don't go that big. Uh, although they're still, you know, much larger than uh, the turtles, you know, the Eastern box turtles or anything like that, that you're going to find around, you know, the Midwestern United States where I live. Uh, so you're thinking full grown, typically uh, around 16 inches in length or so. I will say typically 35 to 40 pounds, although Andrew, you may have more to add on to this too. I feel like I remember you saying maybe you saw some that were even bigger than that, uh, but typically in that 35 to 40 pounds. So, I mean, that's that's quite a heft for a tortoise still. So that's kind of the size range that we're looking at uh, when they're full grown anyway, when you see those little adorable babies, they're like 
ping pong ball sized and precious so with their, and they have these like all tortoises do they have these little old man faces is how I always describe it even the babies they just have these little old man faces so they're super cute and then the name radiated tortoise kind of describes their shell pattern so that's what uh, is one of the things that you can use as you start to identify different tortoise species. So again, tortoise, they have that kind of big domed shell and they have this yellow pattern that kind of radiates out from each uh, like scoot on the top of their shell. It has these just yellow lines that kind of radiate out from the center. So uh, quick description, obviously, Andrew, you can elaborate on any of those things that you would like, but could you also just expand a little more? So Casey mentioned we're talking southern Madagascar in particular, but could you give us maybe a little more description of their natural history, like habitat, diet in the wild, how, how these radiated tortoises live in the wild? Yes. So Casey mentioned earlier where the radiated tortoises from the confiscation were found in Tuliar. So their range is on that southern side of Madagascar. And so if you're looking at a map of Madagascar, if you find Tuliar, it does go for farther north than that. I'd have to do a lot more research, geography <laughs> speaking, on specific places exactly, but it does go higher than Tuliar and does range all the way down the coastline, all the way to the tip of Madagascar. And it does kind of jut up from there as well. But that is their historic range. It's, it's pretty large. Uh, Madagascar is a large island. And so their, their range, unfortunately, over the uh, years has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Uh, but their range follows the coastline and it's quite large even still today. As far as what they're eating in the wild, they're eating a lot of vegetation and leaves mostly. So uh, plant material that falls from the trees, anything that they can reach is what they're going to eat. So they're not necessarily picky about what they're eating, it's just whatever they can get a hold of. And when we think about what tortoises or even turtles are eating as far as uh, plants and leaves, you think, oh, they're eating the most green succulent things they can find. And that's true as long as they can find it. However, during the dry season or when the plants are drying out and maybe there isn't as much food available, they're going to also eat dried up um, leaves. So if, if you were out in the wild watching them during the dry season or when things start to slow down, um, they aren't necessarily finding a lot of food and they're eating whatever is available. So they're eating dead leaves and dead plants and they're not getting much out of that. But during that time, they're also going into a somewhat of a brumation hibernation period where they're going to slow down. They're not going to eat as much food. And that's also partially because there isn't as much food available. Uh, nowadays, there's also invasive species. There's spiny cactus, Aptunia. Apuntia. If you guys have prickly pear, which is actually a native cactus to the U.S., that is uh, the part of the genus of those invasive yes. cactuses. You can find it in grocery stores on occasion. So if you have tortoises at home, uh, specifically <laughs> desert or dry tortoises, <laughs> if you like to keep them, they will love to eat that. But that is uh, everywhere in Madagascar now. It's invasive the cattle that people have there will eat it and when they poop the seeds come out and it will grow so there is a lot of it there the tortoises will eat it uh, but we don't know to what extent it's going to affect their lives we don't gotcha. know if it's going to change their growth rate or how it affects them overall especially since their lifespan is so long we're not going to know all the potential effects of that so there's new things that they're eating and 
if they're being taken care of in captivity there, like we're going to talk about in a little bit, they're also getting food that they wouldn't normally get, like sweet potato leaves right. um, and other grown things that humans have grown for them specifically to add to their diet. And and this habitat, we're talking about cactuses here. This is a desert habitat, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, Can you it's, describe it? So it depends on the area that you're in. So I was in two different areas. There's an area, Lavavolo, that we'll talk about in a little bit. There was, it's mostly sand, mostly kind of a red sand, but there's also more, in that area, there was more hills and cliffs and a little more mountain side range. And there, so there's big rocky areas. And then in Tuliar and in the surrounding area, it is still mostly spiny forest with red sand. So it's all compact red sand for the most part. Uh, but in the areas that aren't chopped down by uh, human settlements, it's very grown in. It, it doesn't always necessarily feel like the typical desert that you think about um, in the specific certain areas where it's grown in. There are some patchy areas that feel more desert, but it's, I would say it's sometimes similar to a dry forest, but a lot of people would say it's a desert. So it is quite filled in, in the areas that are unfortunately slashed and burned. Um, but it is very spiny. Uh, so when you talk about <laughs> spiny forests and being there, it is very spiny. And I was uh, poked and jabbed and scratched up by all sorts of random plants. So, so wear long sleeves and pants if you're Yes, it around. is advisable if you're going to walk around in the, in the bush there and in the plants that you probably want to wear pants and a long sleeve shirt. Yeah, especially if you're trying to catch lizards, they're really quick and you might <laughs> jab your arm into something you don't want to. If you're, to if you're yes. herping, yeah, herping yeah. in Madagascar. Yes, Man, it's just mind blowing even to say that to, to, to me. I think it's so cool. You know, Madagascar for me is such a far off, it's almost like a mystical, you know, we know how important Madagascar is in terms of its biodiversity and things like that. And to just think that you, you were there walking around, yeah. uh, which we will, we will talk more about as we, we go along with the episode, but yeah, that's so cool. Yeah. Having, uh, it is a really incredible place. I've only ever like looked and read books and all of that about <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, you can imagine these, these tortoises crawling under these like wild kind of, uh, chaotic spiky plants mm -hmm. looking for, for shelter and shade during the heat of the day. In, in a lot of ecosystems, a tortoise this size would not become a dominant species because it would have lots of predators that would be eating it. Like if you can think about the US, a coyote or a wolf would like be able to still probably prey upon a species mm -hmm. like a radiated tortoise. But on Madagascar, having such a unique landscape, there's not really a lot of natural predators. And once they reach adulthood, you know, as, as babies, they're much more prone to being eaten by birds and things like that. But once they reach adulthood, they pull themselves in their shell. They're pretty much good. And they're, they're much more affected by things like not being able to find enough food and, or, or extreme weather events would be threats to them. Naturally, the only major predator for radiated tortoises is humans. So Sarah, what are those main threats to radiated tortoises? So the one that is the most familiar to me and that I've talked about in relationship with them the most is the pet trade illegal collection for the pet trade so which is going to be a big theme running through tonight's episode that we're going to talk about but is just an important thing in general i think we want to sometimes think that this doesn't happen or doesn't it couldn't possibly affect us or what we you know 
the pets that we're buying or anything like that. So that is something to be aware of is this is still very much a real thing, uh, especially with animals like reptiles, birds sometimes as well, is that these animals are collected and sold into the pet trade. So you really need to be careful if you're thinking about uh, getting these types of animals as pets. So that's one for sure. We touched a little bit on the habitat loss that they're facing. I mean, both, you know, Andrew talked about the threat of invasive species and how that may or may not be impacting these tortoises down the line, but also just like we talk about with so many other species, human expansion, so agriculture use slash and burn agriculture in particular, the impacts of climate change on the habitat. This, all of these things are only magnified when you're talking about a species like radiated tortoises and so many others in Madagascar that are found only in that one small place. So if their habitat changes too much so that it's inhabitable for them anymore, or they're losing it completely, they're out of luck, basically. It's, this is an island, <laughs> where else are they gonna go? Um, so that's something to think about as well. Um, and then the third one that maybe feels a little more removed for us is that these tortoises are sometimes collected for bushmeat. And bushmeat is really just kind of a catch-all term for any type of animal that is punted and collected for food. But you'll hear the phrase used most often when you're talking about animals that are hunted illegally or unsustainably for food. And this is a big one, and you're, we're probably going to talk about it later on, Casey. I did just want to mention with bushmeat, I think, again, sometimes being so far removed from it, sometimes we can be like, well, that's terrible. How could people, you know, be catching and, and eating these animals? But I think a few, a few things are important to remember. We also catch and eat animals for food, right? So we do the same thing. It just feels a little different because we wouldn't typically collect turtles or tortoises in our part of the world. So I think that can feel a little differently. Uh, and also just remembering the different lives that people are living. So it's not a black and white issue. Sometimes, you know, people are hunting bushmeat because they really need it. Either they really need the sustenance or they really need the money one way or another. So we can dive a little more in, into those, but um, those are a few of the big things that they're getting impacted by. And I would just like to, you know, a couple of things to point out too mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, turtles and tortoises weren't evolved to get away for human, from humans necessarily, specifically tortoises. Right. Uh, they're faster than they look. However, their shells aren't meant to escape human beings. So when they're being collected is you can find a tortoise for the most part, you're just going to go over and pick it up. And Casey had mentioned a little bit earlier how they're going to go under the spiny plants and hide and seek shelter. That's probably their biggest safety, honestly, mm -hmm. from people, because now you're going to have to try to figure out how to get under this bush or giant spiny plant without potentially having to hack it all down. Uh, so you have to use a stick or something to get to them. So that's actually helping them just a tiny bit. And then, you know, just to back to uh, people in Madagascar eating them. Yeah, it seems odd to the majority of us, but also people in the United States eat turtles. Uh, you know, they'll make turtle soup. So, true, you yeah. know, it's, it's nowadays not as a thing that we think about that often. You don't usually go to someone's house for a party and they're like, okay, you ready for turtle soup? <laughs> right. That's not really a thing that happens very often, but people still do it. People still collect turtles to send to different places and they do eat them. And so like, you know, for instance, snapping turtles, that's a big mm -hmm. issue for them. People over collect them and you can have a fishing permit to collect them. 
So that's another species that's in danger from being eaten and overcollected as well, even here in the US. So it's not just Madagascar and other places. We're having similar issues here, but we're more so now sending them out versus keeping them and eating them. Yeah, I would say uh, my dad, when he was a kid, tells stories of, of catching snapping turtles in the pond and eating snapper soup and frog legs and things like that. I think two two big things to to pick up on is is first of all, Madagascar is home to a really diverse set of cultures and and traditions. So when we talk about the Malagasy people, we can't really talk about them as a monolith. People who are in the region and have had their families in the region for a really long time. Some of them will actually have taboos against touching the turtle. It's called a fadi. And so that means that you don't touch them at all. <laughs> like that's, you don't eat them, but you also don't, you don't do anything with them. Um, and that's, you know, trying to do research about it, even from interviews with Malagasy people, they're not really sure what, there's not one unified kind of narrative behind why, but that is a common sort of a tradition in the area. However, Madagascar is again, full of those diverse populations and they do move around a lot. So when you have people coming in from the North who don't necessarily still have those sort of traditional taboos against touching or eating these tortoises, they are more likely to then see them as either a source of profit or a source of food. And something really important to note about Madagascar, it is a very impoverished country. It is one of those places that we would say is like rich in natural resources, but the population is not seeing the benefits of those natural resources. And so over 70% of the country lives in poverty. As anyone listening to this podcast, I'm willing to make a bet that if your kid was starving, you'd eat whatever. <laughs> you wouldn't care how endangered it is. You need to feed your kid. And for a lot of people there, it's hard for them to sort of see that global picture that this species is endangered and it has value because, you know, it's only found here to those people. They're only found there. They're not traveling internationally and seeing that huge picture that, you know, that we're all looking at from a conservation standpoint, what's more important to them is making sure that they can make it till tomorrow. And so I, I hope that our listeners will give a lot of empathy and and hold their judgment against people who participate not only in the bushmeat trade, but also in some of this trafficking, because they are really doing what it takes to survive in these areas. Yeah. And I'll say this is just a good reminder for conservation in, in general, too. You know, so not just the specific thing that we're talking about, but always like you can't have successful converse, conservation without including the people, you know. It, so, I, yeah, that's a, a really good point and a good reminder. Yeah, that's a hundred percent a key to the success of this species, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Andrew, can you talk a little bit about where radiated tortoises are right now, as far as their population goes and as far as their protection? Yes. Yeah, so radiated tortoises, again, like we've discussed, are only found naturally on the island of Madagascar. We also discussed a little bit how at one point they had the largest population of uh, tortoise species. 12 million at one point, that was, that's a lot, but right now they are considered critically endangered and their most recent estimate in their numbers has dropped to 3 million tortoises. And that's due to poaching, uh, development slash and burning of the forest for char charcoal, climate change. Uh, their range has decreased significantly uh, by around 80%. They are federally protected and protected from the international trade under the CITES treaty. 
Uh, so three million, when we hear that number sounds like a lot, like how could a species be endangered when it has three million? But that's down from six million just a couple of years ago with kind of an estimated decline of about 500,000 tortoises a year based on that year out over year decline. So losing 500,000 of anything out in the wild is just not sustainable. There is no animal on, on earth that we're like taking at that rate that can sustain that population the the president of the turtle survival alliance i mean their their goal is to stop turtle and tortoise extinctions and i believe he had a pretty good comparison to bison populations here in the united states there was millions and millions and millions of them and then people just decided to slaughter them and so their population to Decline significantly over a short period of time. So when you go from 12 million to 3 million in a pretty, you know, not a super long span of time, that, that's a significant drop in a population. And a population of animals that can take in the wild up to 30 years to be able to reproduce. So that also is a big hit. You can't, you know, they're mammals are usually mature a lot sooner, but in the wild with radiated tortoises, it can take sometimes 30 years for them to be able to reproduce. And then the eggs have to hatch and then they have to be 30 years old before they can uh, lay eggs. So it can take a long time to get through a couple generations. Yeah. And that, and they have to survive too, you know, they're yes, a little more yes. vulnerable when, when they're little. So yeah, that really helps to put things in perspective because it can be a little confusing when you hear these different numbers, when you're talking about endangered species. So when they look to, you know, classify a species as endangered, critically endangered, threatened, whatever, there's a whole lot of variables that go into it. So it's not just the straight number of animals, which we're obviously estimating anyway, but they do look at things like the population trend increase, decrease over how many years, you know, whether that's a specific span or generation and all of those other sorts of factors as well. So, and yeah, even just when you compare, you know, when you say they've had as many as 12 million, and then when you drop down to 3 million, that feels significant in and of itself to me, uh, even though yes, individually 3 million sounds like a lot. It makes sense when you put all of those numbers uh, together that they're classified where they're at and hopefully we want to we want to do what we can to help turn that around. Yeah, at, at their current pace, conservationists are expecting the species to go extinct within the next couple decades. So let's talk about a story that uh, relates to that. Back to our story, they have found 10,000 tortoises in a house. At this point, already over a hundred of them have already passed away. And in fact, they find two men in the backyard of this house burying dead tortoises. So you got some suspects already. So, okay, we find all these tortoises. They have been sitting in this house likely for months because it takes a long time to collect 10,000 of anything. And so they are dehydrated. They've been walking around on top of each other. Many of them are juveniles because that's who is targeted for the pet trade. And that is what they think that these tortoises were collected for. But the priority immediately is to get them out of that house and into a place where they can be taken care of. So they are transported to the town of Afati, which is north. And that's really like the max north of the range. They are actually transported to a rehabilitation center that's privately owned. I'm so sorry, any French listeners that we have. La Village des Tortues, maybe? 
it's called like tortoise village or something like that. Turtle village is, is what the English translation yes. is. Yeah. <laughs> and their care is placed in the hands of the turtle survival Alliance, which is a conservation organization solely dedicated to the conservation of turtles and tortoises worldwide with a mission statement of zero turtle extinctions, but they need help. They only have a certain amount of people there in Madagascar, and they are not prepared to take on 10,000 tortoises in that triage effort. So that initial like, okay, who immediately needs our help? How, who can we actually save? And then building a facility for them to stay long-term. So they put out a call internationally and lots of conservation organizations, including zoos, work with the Turtle Survival Alliance. And they ask, hey, yeah, sure, money's great. <laughs> but a lot of times you don't hear this from conservation organization. What we actually need is people. We need boots on the ground. We need help. And so a few weeks later, Andrew was one of those people. That's me. Out in Madagascar. <laughs> so how did you get to be part of this rescue effort, Aaron? Uh, Andrew? Aaron, oh, wow. <laughs> this is my... He knows me well. (laughs) We're off to a great start. (laughs) So I was able to, you know, at this point, everyone's hearing about this story. It's in the news, especially in the conservation world, in the AZA world. At the time of this confiscation, I was working at an accredited facility in Indiana. And I put out there that, hey, this is happening to my supervisor, what can we do? So we're getting out there like, what can we do? What can we do? And then as Casey mentioned, we found out that they wanted people. So it took a little bit of effort. The people who ran the organization had to figure out what they were gonna do, if they were gonna do it, uh, so on and so forth, all the little politic things. And then they did decide that they were going to send somebody. So as you know, time went on from making their decision, I ended up, being able to be sent on uh, wave four, group four. So at the uh, end of May, I uh, the, uh, the organization was very helpful at that point. You know, they helped get the tickets set up for the planes, direct flights. They even got me uh, row row seating and spacing. So because for those of you who obviously can't see me, don't know me, I'm pretty tall. So uh, there's long flights, so they didn't want me to be squished in the entire time. And so uh, they also had to get, help me get a passport. Uh, they, so they paid for that. They paid for uh, the vaccinations that I needed to go to Madagascar. So I had to do all those little things to, get, to prepare myself, get boosters and all that, because it was a little closer than they probably would have liked for vaccinations. But so I got boosters, got everything prepared. and had the actually the second flight to Paris from uh, Indianapolis, which is kind of fun. Uh, they had just started that one. And so I went from Indiana to the Paris uh, airport, and that was about an eight hour flight. And then from Paris to Madagascar, the capital, Antananarivo, and then stayed there the night. So, you know, a big shout out to, you know, AZA and everyone who participated. They put in a lot of effort to get people there and also individual people paid for themselves to go. I met uh, a woman named Sue who paid her own money, uh, wow. money out of her pocket to go. So I was uh, luckily able to get funding and participate in this through the facility that I worked at yeah. at the time. I'm like super giddy just listening to this <laughs> and I can't remember 
where I was or why I wouldn't, but I sort of feel like I didn't know that you were doing this until you were already like, I, I, I feel like you were already going. Yeah. And I learned about it. I don't remember why, but like, I just the, as you're talking about it, I'm so excited for you. (laughs) Obviously it's not an ideal situation that you would want, you know, to go over for this reason. But was this like, I mean, dream come true for you? Like if you were going to choose a list of places that you could travel to, would Madagascar have been like, what were you thinking as you were like, I'm flying to Madagascar right now? So the first thing is, I don't know to what extent they release that information to everybody yeah i'm not sure what they did i was unless i'm misremembering i'm pretty sure i had like a new spot came in to ask like what i'd be doing and things like that i don't know to what extent that went out i don't know who they bragged you know who they told or what they put out there i don't remember anything ever so (laughs) i could be misremembering no it's it's fine that was feel like we talked about it a lot 2018 so so (laughs) it's been a little bit I would never, I mean, you know, if I was looking at where I'd want to go, that was one of the places where I would have wanted to go, but would have that been the first place? No. So one of the big things is I have never been outside of the United States (laughs) until this time. So my entire life, I'm from Minnesota, never been to Canada, never been to Mexico. You know, I've never been outside at all of the U.S. Uh, So to big trip. Yeah, so to suddenly go to Madagascar is pretty intense. It's it's not a you know a light thing. It's you're in a completely different country on a completely different part of the world. And so that was it was pretty intense. So yeah, it was it was amazing to be able to go there and to be able to go, you know, I wasn't on vacation. That's the right. other thing too, is I wasn't just going there for fun. Granted, it was super fun, but I was also working. I was doing work. I was doing hard work. So I only had about half a day off at one point. I worked pretty much every single day. I was there for about two weeks other than like travel time. Um, when I was with the tortoises, I was I was working. So flying out there was just flying, you know, it's was, it was kind of long, but um, overall it was great. It was great to be able to go out there on my first trip and my first conservation trip and I you know hopefully fingers crossed in the future I'll be able to get to more places and help with more conservation things all right so you have arrived in Madagascar in this point in the story you've uh, now made it down to Ifati where you are helping out with the tortoises what were your duties when you arrived you mentioned that this was a couple weeks in so there were a couple waves of volunteers that had already come the initial sort of part of it is over but within the first week over 500 tortoises had passed away of disease and of dehydration from being in that situation so it's still a pretty dire situation what do your days look like what is the state of the tortoises at this point so one thing before i start that is we need to do we talked about the tsa being the main contributor to these animals Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have to do a shout out to sop tom which i don't remember the full on you know what it all stands for for. It's, (laughs) it's a french facility and you know the translation is again i'm slaughtering this but you know it's pretty much saying like helping the environment and 
turtle species pretty much. So you got to shout out to them because it was their facility and they had other radiated tortoises and spider tortoises that they were caring for there. And they participated in this and allowed these animals to be placed there until they were moved. So we have to, you know, give a shout out to them as well. But when I arrived there at the facility, unfortunately it is an impoverished country. So there were some nicer pens. There were some kind of less nice pens. And so a lot of the things that were going on with myself as a zookeeper, I'm taking care of the animals as best I can. So I'm first thing in the morning, we're going uh, every morning, we're going to the site and I am checking the animals. So I'm going around to the pens that the tortoises are in and I am going through and checking them to see if they're alive. I'm seeing as many as I can and seeing if they, if any have passed away over the night before. Because unfortunately, even though that they were being taken care of as best we could, we didn't necessarily know all the factors that were going into how they were feeling. So the first thing in the mornings is life checks. And at that point, a lot of the tortoises had been sent out to their final destination, Lava Volo, which we'll talk in a little talk about in a little bit. So when I arrived, there was roughly 3,000 tortoises which is still a lot of tortoises. Mm-hmm. I never in my life thought I would go somewhere and be around even several hundred tortoises, you know? So being around uh, 3000 tortoises and that was just the confiscation. Again, the, the facility had other tortoises. So I was able to like walk around and see them as well. So I saw lots and lots of tortoises, which was awesome. And so doing life checks, uh, that was very difficult because all the tortoises are hiding under places. And honestly, sometimes you don't know if you've picked up the same tortoise or not. So in the mornings, they're all hiding and they're not mobile. So that made it a little bit easier because you're going and lifting up brush that they're hiding under, which was mostly the makeshift hides. There were some uh, larger shade structures that they would hide under, but it was mostly under uh, just a bunch of vines and litter that they threw in there to, to co- so they could cover themselves up. So you pick up a pile or go to the fence line and kind of just count and look at them and see how they're doing. And any ones that you felt like needed uh, more attention from vets, um, you would bring those particular animals to the vet staff. So I was more of the care. And then there were vets and vet techs that came along as well. And so there was, if I remember correctly, there was eight pens, eight pens that we were using for those animals. And then there was also the the emergency triage pens. So there were individuals that also were in pens that were critical care tortoises. And then inside the little house that was there and where they did the treatments, there was also like very critical care where animals that weren't eating, they were like worse off than even the individual separated groups. And then I would, you know, check about 3000 tortoises pretty much every day, which is a lot. So it took a while. That would take all day. It it took a while. So for the first couple days, I was the only quote unquote keeper. Uh, So I was doing a lot those first couple days um, all by myself. And then some other people came from different areas, from different facilities to help out. So I didn't get a little more help and the vets had to do their things all day. So I was kind of on my own for a little bit. They were also, um, Malagasy keepers. So they did um, train and teach some younger Malagasy people how to take care of the tortoises. So um, sometimes I'd be there by myself because they would come in actually pretty early and do some things. And there was a couple of times where they had to leave. So it was myself and uh, some of the 
American people that came and helped. And then we would change their waters. So they all had individual water dishes. That was in and of itself um, a difficult thing because they only had one well for water on the property. So we would have to fill containers with water to take over to the pans and walk, rinse them out and wash them out and refill them. So that was kind of a trek here, lugging giant things of water around. And also the well was on solar energy. Sometimes the solar powered pump stopped working. So then we would have to actually throw buckets down the well and pull those up. You're like straight up snow. But instead of singing for birds and animals (laughs) to help me, I was taking care of tortoises. So they didn't help me very much. They were pretty slow getting over there. They they, they were just rescued. They've been through a lot. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, (laughs) So then we would also help feed if they hadn't been fed already or prepare food. We got food from the surrounding forest if we could uh we didn't collect the food the food was brought to us they would you know it was paid for by the uh, tsa and they had people going and getting sweet potato um, leaves and things like that and we would chop up the cactus pads which we talked about earlier again we don't know to what extent that would do to their lifelong systems and all that but they needed food and that's one of the foods that was readily available and they still ate it again tortoises love cactus pads you know and being a zookeeper that's what I did all the time. I take care of animals and I was taking care of radiated tortoises where I worked. Um, the biggest difference is that there were so many of them versus when at the facility, I think at the most I took care of eight, eight adults. But now I'm taking care of thousands of them and doing the best I can. And when I, like I said, I was working pretty much the whole time and I would put extra, as much extra effort in as I could. One of the big issues that I saw was that it's hard to clean up after so many tortoises. And so when you're going through their pens, you're like, man, it's kind of gross in here because they're, you know, there's so many going to the bathroom and it's hard to have time to clean up when you're checking all of them. And we would go through the pens and do life checks and health checks on them. So we would go through each pen and look at each individual. How does it look? How are its eyes looking? Uh, how is the weight? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel like it's been eating and drinking? All of our health assessments unfortunately were external because we just didn't have the availability to do anything else we didn't have the availability to run fecal samples for parasites or blood work or anything like that and unfortunately even the malagasy hospitals didn't really have much going on even for human uh, human care at least that's what one of the vets saw so it makes it, it made things a little bit more difficult. Samples were collected, and I believe, unless I'm wrong, the Bronx Zoo, uh, I did, I believe, did run some samples of things. I'm not sure where that all went or if they even used any of that information that they found. But even, you know, when animals would die, the vets would do necropsies on them. And for those of you who might not know what that is, is they cut open the tortoises and see if they could find what potentially had killed them or why they died. But again, you can't run samples of tissues or anything like that. So unless there was something very obvious, you don't know specifically why they died. Yeah. So just to throw a quick question at you that that might lead into our next question there too. And and you you sort of just touched on it a little bit. So just for folks who might be like, well, why are we doing all of this? Why aren't we just putting them back out there? It is because a lot of them were not 
doing well in part, right? So that's part of the yes. reason you couldn't just say, oh, well, we found these tortoises. Let's go put them back in the wild, which I know you'll talk a little more about that process too. Yeah. But also, so given that, so knowing these tortoises, we don't really know how long they had been kept in that building necessarily, yes. a lot of them, right? So is it is the, the thought, knowing that we can't do all those tests, that it is just a lot of like malnutrition dehydration, potentially like parasites, disease, just getting passed around in all of the close quarters. Is that what the sort of prevailing thought is what was wrong with a lot of these tortoises? Yeah, all of the above. Yes. So everything you just talked about is all the reasons. So it's, if you put them back, they may have just been too sick or not have enough energy from not eating to even be able to find food and water. We don't know to what extent, how many were sick. Um, a lot of animals don't show that they're ill because if you show that you're ill and uh, you might get eaten you're by dying, something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's that. And then well, I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit later as well is you put them back where they were found and more people are going to immediately find them again. Yeah. So there's uh, all of those factors. I think were a combination of why they couldn't just put them back because you also just don't know what those tortoises in that horrible situation are going to bring to the other tortoises as well back to diseases and things you know whatever may have already been in there naturally they've gotten sick and all smashed together from potentially different areas in madagascar you're going to potentially pass a deadly disease you don't you don't know for sure and some of those tortoises also had some physical injuries as well from being so crammed and climbing over on top of each other as well yes so when you're, and I, I did actually take pictures of a lot of tortoises and I've given a couple of presentations here and there. And yes, yeah, so there is um, tortoises that were missing front feet, back feet, had chunks taken out of their shells, had shell injuries. So it is hard to say to what extent those injuries occurred before they were mm -hmm. captured or not, but you know, I would assume a lot of at least the shell injuries, the impacts, the the cracks, the scrapes, the whatever, anything above um, broken jaws, broken jaws. Yep. Um, uh, nasal cavities that were broken. Um, so instead of seeing like two little holes where their nostrils are, it just looks like one because they're broken open. You know, bro I'm sure broken legs and feet and just things that yeah. we couldn't see necessarily. I would assume a lot of that was probably from being crammed together, potentially stepped on, yeah. rammed by other tortoises that were upset. And, you know, we didn't, they didn't find a lot of the adult tortoises because unfortunately had died or been sold off or eaten. But, you know, there's a, a, a lot of young tortoises that were softball size or lower being trampled on by tortoises that outweigh them 10 to one. Right. Yeah, that could potentially have a lot of injuries as well. Yeah. So I, yeah, I think that paints a, a good picture too. And if you haven't, just speaking of pictures, do go back and search for those of you listening to, to see what some of those pictures that were released from when this news story first broke, because it really does. Uh, it's hard. It's hard to imagine, I think, yes, for us having not seen it. So to, you should to just be able really to give find yourself it, an idea. Yeah, you yeah. should be able to find it pretty easily if you can't or if you want to search more specifically which i think casey was just about to talk about is you can go to turtlesurvival.org which is the turtle survival alliance and they should have they do have stories on that and they do talk about week to week with the you know the rescuers and people that went and all about it so you should be able to find things pretty easily 
Yeah. Um, National Geographic also did a great article about this, and that's where one of our sources for today's episode, um, as well as the Turtle Survival Alliance. So um, Andrews is just one of many stories from this. I think, uh, you know, just talking about that last section too, we, we a lot of times imagine reptiles as these sort of like little robots roaming around the earth because they uh, don't resemble us very closely. So we've talked a lot of times about having empathy for the animals, but these animals were in a pretty traumatic situation. So we also don't know to what extent that's going to change their behavior as well, um, being in this area. Andrew, you talked a little bit about some of the tortoises by the time you got there had already been transported to a different area. Why were they transporting the tortoises to a new area? What was the goal? And you actually followed them down there. What did you do there? So first off, uh, again, the facility that they were at was not owned by the TSA. So that's one factor. So, you know, they had all their other animals they had to deal with and they were a teaching facility. So they would bring uh, native uh, Malagasy people in and children and teach them about the the tortoises and animals of Madagascar and you know why they should care about them and help try to preserve them and then we also you know the TSA needed to actually move the animals to a facility that they had started so that facility was down in Lava Volo which was further south again off the coast and that area was about 10 hours driving and it was four hours, I believe, by boat slash driving. So the tortoises had to take a 10-hour car ride just to get to their final location to be cared for there. And that, I'm sure, was not fun for them. So one <laughs> big thing- fun for you? <laughs> it was not fun for me either. No, I will say, well, I was going to get to that in a second. So no, driving specifically in the areas that are not up you don't have roads. The area that we were had some roads is more populated area where the tortoises ended up in Lava Volo. There's no concrete roads to a certain point. So we can drive down and I took a boat, a speed boat down towards Lava Volo, which was about an hour. And then they also sent the emergency radiated tortoises. So one of the ones that are critical care, those also went on a boat as well, just to get them there faster. So you go, you take this boat to Nosy Bay, and that's a coastline, and they actually have uh, a preserve over there because there's a specific type of seabird that only nests there. So that was pretty cool. So that's an hour boat ride. And then from that, it's a three-hour car ride. And if it was, the tortoises had a similar car ride, but for 10 hours, it is not fun. <laughs> you are driving on sand, and it's uneven sand. So it feels like you're being jostled the entire time. So, you know, what the best way I think to describe it is if you, for those of you who have flown and ever experienced turbulence, you're kind of just being shook back and forth for about three hours. So not, not the best thing ever, nope. but you know, you got to do what you got to do. Another issue that you have when you're sending tortoises who on the black market are worth a lot of money is that there are people who want to rob you and they actually would have to stop if they were driving and they couldn't get to the destination um, before it, it the nightfall came, they would have to pull over and stop somewhere because from what I was told, at least, there were pretty much road pirates. So there were people that would stop vehicles and rob them. So if they had found 
you know, we would, I think the, what the grouping that was sent out when I went that way was a, ah, shoot, I think it was about 400 we sent out and that could have been a lot of money and also hurt the program as well. And those tortoises would have been through even more. So they had a, they had a rough, rough adventure, even to that um, destination. So going down there was, you know, that way was pretty intense. I didn't speak Malagasy or French. Uh, so they also have uh, teach a lot of the children and people growing up there in that in those areas French and there's also French tourists and no one spoke English other I mean if they did it was very minor other than the TSA Malagasy representative who ran all of this he had a lot of things to do so he spoke French Malagasy English and a little bit of Japanese actually which was pretty interesting and so I didn't have anybody to talk to. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, this is crazy. And so he was down there as well. And so I met him uh, after the boat and then we went together and then we went in, uh, into Lava Volo and that facility housed is where they sent all the tortoises to. And a very cool thing with all of that is they had to negotiate with the people living there, how they would allow them to create this facility so this facility was on those people's sacred grounds that's the area that they have that's their their living space that's sacred ground to them and they asked them like what can we do for you if you'll allow us to you know have this facility here because that group of people like Casey mentioned earlier had the taboo and they didn't really you know touch the tortoises or eat them or anything like that and they actually wanted a school so the TSA actually built them a school and that was very, uh, very cool. It's pretty awesome to see that those people wanted to progress their learning and, you know, they got something amazing out of helping the tortoises as well. So they get us can learn more and help the tortoises. And I think that's um, great. And then once I was down there with the tortoises, I, you know, did the same similar things with uh, then when I got there, I helped care for them. Um, I also helped collect rocks to build walls. So they actually had to manually co collect rocks and, you know, move the rocks around the facility to create separate pens because they did have separate different size tortoises. You can't just stick them all in the same pen and hope that no one gets trampled. So that was, <laughs> that was pretty hard work. We would load up a truck with a bunch of stones and pile them up and make walls. And then eventually they uh, would get concrete and make more sturdy walls, actual walls. And then I also was able to help. I uh, went around with one of the Malagasy keepers and we went through all of the adults that they had there and we counted them and sexed them. So we, we, I think there was around 80 adults that they had at the facility and it was almost a 50, 50 split between males and females. So I was able to number, help number them. We painted numbers on them one through 80 or 82 or whatever the exact number was and recorded that and so we gave him all that information and a fun note from that is they have had babies at that facility yeah. from those adults so that's fun yay so that oh that's fun super thing. fun yeah that's very cool. and let's see and then i also went herping <laughs> so during the heat of the day between like 11 and 1 it was kind of a long lunch break for the malagasy people it was it would just be too hot and they they, they'd been up for like, since like five or 6am. So I had some super long days. And so during that time, I would eat lunch and be like, Oh, okay, I'll just go look for animals and stuff. So 
I went, I went around and I didn't stray too far from the camp because that was Wise. a little scary. You know, yeah. I'm not about to get lost in the middle of Madagascar. <laughs> middle of a country where you don't speak any of the languages. Yep, exactly. There's road pirates. <laughs> yes, road pirates. And yeah, so I was I was careful not to stray Good. too far. So we're glad you're back. Yes, yes. <laughs> but that's so cool to have an opportunity again to go to go herping in Madagascar. Amazing. So basically that facility that you were in in Lava that was the indefinite holding space for those animals for that near future. Yes. So one of the things we mentioned earlier is that those animals had been under a lot of stress. You weren't sure what kind of diseases they had, that if you put them back, you're not sure if they're just going to be immediately poached again. So those are the reasons that we wouldn't be able to just release them back in the wild. However, I would say like during this entire time, the TSA was pretty outspoken that they wanted to eventually yes. get those animals back out in the wild, right? Yes. So the the end goal is to release them back into the wild. That also, unfortunately, does take money, preparation, a lot of time. So one of the big factors was how can they keep track of these tortoises? Do they have the funds to put radio transmitters on them? Where are they going to place them? Because they had released tortoises back into the wild in the past, and those tortoises were recollected. So it's not an easy thing to do because you know there's the possibility that they're going to be caught again by somebody. So you have to choose what you're doing very wisely and where you're doing it and preparing for scenarios of everything that might happen. Thanks, Andrew, for sharing your story with us. Sarah, do you have anything to add to this section? We're going to follow it up by talking about some <laughs> updates from now. No, I'm, I, yeah, just, yes, thanks, Andrew. But yeah, let's see where the story went from there. Yes. So that's 2018, right? 2018, yep. 2018, you make it safely back. Yep, make to, it back to the United to States. The United States. Shout out to Casey. Uh, by the way, I do have animals at home that I take care of and have tortoises, snakes, lizards. And she had to go through taking care of all of them while I was gone <laughs> with her cat, with, you know, a cat and a dog as well and a, and a little bird. So she had a lot on her plate. So I have to give a shout out to her for doing all of that while I was gone. And how long um, were you away? Again, I was total? gone about three weeks with travel. So I was yeah. in Madagascar for about like two weeks. And, but then, you know, traveling was a couple of days at a time sometimes. Yeah. So she went through a lot and I'm sure it was very stressful. So thank you. Worth it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Worth it for some turtles. <laughs> she was very excited for me, but she did go through the pain a lot. And then my, my old coworkers as well, when I was gone, they were short a person for several weeks. So they had to deal with it. So they probably won't hear this, but shout out to them as well, Jake and Dan. Maybe they'll listen to it because they're in this episode. Uh, shout yeah, out to there them. you but go. They also had to, you know, pick who up one. Who else do you want to shout person. out? Yeah. Get us, get us uh, let's see no. who, else, who else. So you and you guys to meet a lot of cool people there too. I right? did, yeah. yeah. So one thing about you know meeting cool people is I got to meet Harry Lala, who I didn't say his name, but he was running all that stuff for the TSA. He had like three phones. I swear he had three phones. He had his own phone. He had a TSA phone. I think people were calling him constantly. It was crazy. So he was doing a lot of work. Um, Niaina, who is the 
She's the head veterinarian. Yeah, she's the head vet. Yeah, so she, and Mag- yeah, so she she did a lot as well. She was very helpful. You know, the Malagasy people and keepers who helped with all of that and still help with all of that. People on guard duty, feeding them, taking care of them. Uh, all the people that came from different parts of the world. I met people who came from like the UK, and there's a he grew up. Pretty sure he's from the U.S., but he's doing stuff in Saudi Arabia. So he came from over there. People just around around the country did great things and put their time and, like I mentioned earlier, their own money into doing these things and all the facilities as well. I'm sure some if you look into it, you could find it, but you could find everyone who participated and helped and sent supl- thousands of pounds of supplies and people, and you know it, it was a humongous effort, and it still is. It's still continual. So as a result of this, I mentioned earlier, we had some suspects involved. Um, Two men were burying dead tortoises in the backyard and a woman owned the house. I believe I found articles being like, those are the suspects. And then three people were arrested. So I'm going to say probably it was the same people, but can't say for sure. But they were actually arrested and convicted in this mass poaching incident. And they did receive jail time, um, which is a pretty big deal. One of the major issues for radiated tortoises is that the punishment does not really outweigh the reward for poaching these animals. Like if you successfully sell these tortoises to a trafficker, you're going to make a lot more money than if you're caught by the government. So if you do it once successfully, it's worth it to just keep doing it. And that's obviously a huge problem. And there's a lot of issues with not just corruption, but also just a lack of enforcement. In Madagascar, the capital is um, way up north and the south of Madagascar, it's harder to communicate changes in law. A lot of people don't necessarily know that like this is what the consequences of doing this are or are actually going to get caught for it as well. So um, the fact that three people did receive punishment for it is actually a really important step. And we do see people in other countries also, um, like Indonesia and China, getting arrested for offenses related to trafficking radiated tortoises. Had some bad things that happened afterwards. It was uh, in just a couple months later in October, another 7,000 of these tortoises were found and confiscated from another poaching incident. So by that time, that pushed the amount of tortoises under the Turtle Survival Alliance's care that were confiscated from poachers at 25,000 tortoises Mm. that are under their care and continue to be under their care. That obviously is a lot of money. and a lot of groundwork. So they do employ local people in Madagascar. They also pay a lot of local people who will grow food in their garden for the radiated tortoises, take them to the rescue centers, and then they will pay them for that that effort. So um, making sure that the community is involved is incredibly important. And after this year, this was the worst year for confiscations, but the year following that was a lot better. And what they found is that by forming these relationships with the community, you had a lot more people telling, like informing the government and the TSA when poaching incidents were happening. They were more likely to be involved in proactive conservation rather than to be the ones actually pulling those tortoises out of the wild. So that's a really great thing. As of 2021, the TSA still cares for about 25,000 of these tortoises. However, there's a good update. Just a couple weeks ago, they announced that they are starting the release process for a thousand of these tortoises that were involved in the 2018 rescue effort that Andrew was a part of. Woo. Woo. Yeah. We're getting there. (laughs) 
So it, it's, it's a gradual process. They had to go through and have somebody, they had like a grant that somebody came out and did population and surveys around the area to see what would be the most successful place to put these animals back. Because we talked about people in the area. If you put them back in an area where people are more likely to poach them than to try and protect them, then you're just basically sending the tortoises right back to the, the same issues they had before. Um, so they found a good release area and they put them in a kind of semi-wild enclosure to establish site fidelity. Andrew, can you tell us what site fidelity is? So when you are looking to release any animal, but you know, the tortoises in particular right now, is you're looking for one, the habitat. So what does that habitat look like? Does it have enough cover for the tortoises? Is there going to be a substantial amount of food for those tortoises? Like you mentioned as well, what's going on with the population of humans there? Are you worried about them being stolen from the wild again? So that's another thing you have to think about in this sense. And a big thing is establishing a home range. So when you're looking at the fidelity of an area, you're going to have to get those animals accustomed to that area. If you were to just take an animal and just go, you're from Madagascar and this is your range, here you go. They're going to be very confused. They're not going to know what's going on. Sarah, if I took you and put you in the middle of Indiana, some random place you've never been before. <laughs> it's a cornfield. Cornfield, <laughs> yeah. You're going to be in a cornfield. I'm going to put you in the middle of a cornfield. You're not going to know necessarily where to go. Nope. We have a little bit of an advantage because we have roads and we have signs to go to places. But if let's say all those things disappear and I just put you in a cornfield, you're, you're going to be super confused. You're just going to end up wandering and hopefully you go into a correct direction. And that's, what's going to happen to these animals. Uh, tortoises are very visual, visually oriented. They are visual markers. They are using the landscape to be able to figure out where they are. They have done studies with different species of tortoises to see what their cues are for if they know where they're going directionally. So they'll use visual cues to orient themselves. So when you're putting an animal in a place where, especially tortoises, in a place they don't know, they don't have a way to orient themselves. So they're going to put them in temporary pens. That's why it's called the semi-wild release. And so they can get used to that area, used to the food that's available. And also so they can't just wander away. That's another thing is when you're keeping track of them, they also want to make sure that they're healthy before they fully release them. So if you're having animals that you put out for this program and they're not doing well, even in the semi-wild pens, then you probably don't want to release those individuals because they're potentially just not going to survive because they maybe got sick again or something else is going on that you might have to deal with. So those animals are then going to be able to figure out their surroundings and figure out visual cues. And then hopefully that will be their home range because they do have home ranges. They do know where they're going and they can figure out where they need to go directionally to get to a certain location. So you can't just drop in the middle of nowhere and hope that everything's going to be okay. It's the same. I mean, so we've talked about helping turtles cross the road before and helping them yeah. to cross the, the direction that they were going because they do know where they're going. So yeah, so this, you're basically, I don't know if this is exactly the right way to say it, but you're basically trying to reset their home range a little bit. Like I'm yes. nowhere near where I came from, yeah. but I, <laughs> yeah. now I'm used to this space. I, I sort of get what's going on here. And so I'm going to be yes. comfortable. And this is yes. be my it's new home. making them comfortable in that, in that area. Yes. So we're giving them a new house. And, and this is important because males and females also have different patterns of how they 
will nest. So like the, the males are more likely to range a little bit more widely while the females are more likely to kind of stay in a range that they know because they know that they're, well, we can try and assume that they're trying to set up their offspring for success. And so they know that this is an area they've survived. This is an area where their offspring would be able to find food and shelter as well. So knowing that area is going to definitely help those animals feel like they should stay there rather than wandering to wherever. And it's been pre-vetted by the TSA. Uh, they have microchipped all of these animals. So if they do get poached and they're confiscated again, you can immediately tell that these are animals that were in the care of the TSA and 30 to 40 of them will have GPS tracking devices on them as well. So we'll be actually able to see if they do establish that site fidelity and stay in that area. And hopefully technology for the win technology, technology, (laughs) hopefully this sets us up for success for future release of some of the rest of the tortoises that are good candidates for going back out in the wild. And to me, this is really, it's a long process, but it's really the only process by which we're going to be able to successfully keep these animals wild rather than just animals that survive in human care in either rescue centers or in places abroad like zoos where we can kind of ogle at them as a, as a part of our world, but that they don't get to function in their ecosystem the way that they did at 12 million strong just a couple years ago. So, and then continuing to work with those communities is also the only way that there is going to be safe habitat for them. Um, because the people are the key to making sure that these animals have a successful future living alongside people in Madagascar. You guys have anything to add? Thanks, Andrew. That's what I'll say. (laughs) I mean, this is a really again, a terrible thing that happened and does still happen, you know, so this was a really big one that made the news, but this is an ongoing thing, but I just feel like this and getting to hear your story and kind of being able to go step-by-step through this process with you, uh, it's just a really good illustration of how much work (laughs) conservation is, and, you know, it's the money, it's the manpower, it's understanding and working with people from different communities and cultures and um its dedication and persistence and all of that and and education yeah you know that's another big one is teaching everybody that you know these animals were are here as well and you know even people outside of madagascar Mm -hmm. you're going to hear it at zoos you're going to hear it from individuals but i'm going to say it again anyway you know when you're looking for an animal as a pet a tortoise a turtle no matter what it is, you know, make sure that you're figuring out where it came from. Find a reputable breeder. Sometimes you're not going to necessarily know where that animal comes from, uh, but there's plenty of people out there who have records, who've been doing it for a long time. We don't see, I personally haven't seen, at least recently, anything about, you know, radiated tortoises in particular coming illegally to the United States. Sadly, it probably happens. We just maybe don't, don't know about it. Again, we're in, Madagascar and other countries aren't the only places that illegally poach tortoises and Mm -hmm. turtles and Casey mentioned a little bit earlier about poaching those animals sometimes you just don't have a large punishment yeah she was saying it the the benefits outweigh the risks yeah and that's the same thing here in the U.S. if you look at stories uh, one recently about box turtles a man uh, got caught 
with a hundred and something odd uh, native box turtles to the U.S., which is illegal to take and ship to different places. In most states, it's illegal to have specific turtle species because they're endangered or they're only specifically found in those areas. And in my opinion, the punishment is not necessarily high enough to stop those people. Okay, I have some, you know, a little bit of time. I might be on probation, but he, you know, you never know if those people are going to do it again, because did it really, you know, they can make so much more money off of doing it again. And hopefully they just don't get caught. So, you know, and it's something that we're working on. They turtle survival Alliance is working in different places on legislation to keep that from happening. And so that there are harsher punishments for those things. And so, you know, just, just be careful about where you're getting your animals from. And it, it is also happening around, around where we live. So you see it a lot in the news about all these other places happening in Asia and Madagascar and Africa. It happens here as well. Yeah, this is not something that's isolated to radiated tortoises. They are just sort of a case study example of things that are happening to many species of turtles and tortoises all around the globe. This is one of the most endangered group of vertebrates in the world, turtles and tortoises. Um, and it also has, is something that we absolutely have the power to stop. So I, you know, reptiles are my favorite and I'm sure you guys have maybe talked about all of this in different podcasts, but it's not just turtles and tortoises and reptiles. There's a lot of different animals. So, you know, I'm biased in the fact that I like them more than other animals, However, like there's plenty of species out there that are having similar issues. So, you know, we all have to work together on it. And as we mentioned at Casey was talking about the beginning, you know, people are sometimes just have, that's what they have to do to survive. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we're looking at what's going on and not blaming particular people for them trying to support their family and themselves. So. Well, thanks, Andrew. In the next segment, we're going to be talking about what we can do to save radiated tortoises what our challenge of the week is but thanks for joining us yeah i was glad to do it and if there's ever if you ever want to have a mini podcast i can talk about some more shenanigans from madagascar as well so this is kind of like the bonus podcast this is kind of like the main the main thing here's a here's one here's one teaser we can talk about how i went down in a cave to look for uh maki which are ringtail lemurs that was exciting. I can't wait. So we should <laughs> bonus pod. That's a fun story. Coming I got soon. a couple of fun things to talk about outside of the typical care and everything. That would be fun. I'm there. Love Looking it. Thanks, to Andrew. It. Yes. Thanks for having me on. Bye. All right. And we are here for our conclusion and challenge action of the week. Um, we talked a lot about radiated tortoises during this episode, and there are tangible things that you guys can do to help them out. My first challenge for you is to go follow the TSA on social media. They are super active on social media. They're going to post about all sorts of crazy turtles and tortoises that you had no idea existed, <laughs> were endangered, <laughs> and also all the cool things that the TSA is doing for them. So they, they have so many cool projects in so many different countries. Highly recommend a follow on social media. However, I have a 
beast mode challenge yes, for the week. Yes, it's been too long since we <laughs> like dug the actual beast mode. Love beast it. mode. Okay. We talked about the TSA has about 25,000 radiated tortoises, not counting any other the tortoises, guys. There's lots of other tortoises that they take <laughs> care of too. Uh, it takes less than $4 to take care of a radiated tortoise for an entire year in Madagascar. You did not mishear that, friends. This is a thing that Casey educated me on <laughs> not too long ago like, because, you know, of the, their size and their needs and all of that. It's much less expensive than you might think to do it. So $4 per year. My mind was blown when I heard that. $4 per year. I spend $4 on a Frappuccino, cappuccino thing from Starbucks or Wawa. Like I'm not to like millennial you, but like <laughs> it's, it's legitimately an amount of money. When you talk about the conservation of other species, like think about a tiger, you're like, wow, this tiger needs like a crazy amount of space. And we'd need like eight camera traps just to know where the heck it is half mm -hmm. the time. And like, not that it's not worth it, but it is a lot of money to effectively protect an animal for these tortoises in their care, $4 for an entire year. I want to challenge you in this rare example to donate to the TSA and they have a little comment box. You can say like a little greener sent me or whatever you want. You can say, you know, whatever you would like about why you're doing it. Um, but I hope that the story that we had today moved you. This is a project I've been uh, in communication with the TSA about for a long time, and I'm hoping to help spread the word more about this plight and how easy it is for us to help. So I really want to challenge you, you know, $4 is, is what it takes for one. If you have the means, try and sponsor more. No one's limiting you to one tortoise here. Try and, and sponsor as many as is reasonable for you, but it, it makes a huge difference. And talking to the TSA personally, they have told me like, if we do not get these funds for it, it is the difference between taking care of these animals in a safe space or prematurely putting them back out into a situation where they could be poached again. They have been able to do this careful release program for these thousand tortoises. And that is really the goal. And that cannot be rushed. And we don't want them to do that because they don't have the funds to take care of these animals. So $4 a year, guys. And Casey, That's my just, soapbox. just to clarify, no, I, I think it's a great one. Um, it, when you go to the website, Yes. Is there a specific, like you can click donate here and then just donate whatever amount you want. I'm going to the website right now on the right-hand side of the webpage is a orange donate button. You're going to donate and you can do an individual donation. They have suggested donation amounts that start at $25 guys. That's like six tortoises right there. That's awesome. But you can specify another amount, uh, amount that is lesser than that if you want, or more than that. And you can put in all of your information and you can make it in memory of someone that you love. You can specify that you're saying this is, this is what I'm doing it for. So it's, it's really easy. It's turtlesurvival.org. I, that's my little soapbox yeah. for today. It's a great organization. We mentioned it a couple of times there. I don't remember if it's their mission statement or just their goal of no more turtle extinctions. What a great goal. Like, I just love that Succinct. how simple and direct <laughs> it is. This is our goal. No more. Uh, I love it. So yeah, I think this is a fantastic, both, both of them, both following them. They're a great follow on social media. 
and then yeah if again even just four dollars if you can uh you're saving and saving a tortoise life there so yeah cool. and we appreciate you guys listening through this i know it was probably a long one <laughs> but uh i hope you learned a lot yeah it's very grateful to andrew for coming on it's always great to hear again having not been somebody who's ever done really in the field work i always love hearing those stories um and very appreciative to him and everybody that that helped and is still helping today. So thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, as always, there's a number of ways you can find us. If you have, if you have questions, you know, if there's anything we didn't cover that you want to know about, uh, Andrew's trip or the work that the TSA is doing, you know, reach out and we can try to answer those for you as best as possible questions, thoughts, suggestions, feedback, any of that, uh, you can send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. We're at a little greener podcast. You can also find us on Instagram at a little greener pod. And we do always love to hear from you. Casey, thank you. I don't know if you had anything else to add before we go, but thank you for all of the work that you do as well to support the TSA and educate folks about radiated tortoises. We appreciate that. I'm really happy and, and honored to do it. It's something that's, it means a lot to be able to be involved in conserving a species, even in a fairly tangential way, which I feel like is a better way to describe my sort of uh, involvement in it. But I really want to encourage you if you are in a position to, you're looking for a hobby. There's lots of ways that you can be directly involved in the conservation of species all over the world if you can do it, it's some of the most meaningful stuff that you'll ever do. So, uh, thanks for listening and Sarah, thanks for being a great podcast. Nope. Podcast host. <laughs> yep. Too Whatever. long. The episode's too long. Okay. <laughs> thanks <laughs> we'll everyone. See you all next week. <laughs> Bye. Bye.